Hello and welcome to part one of this two-part episode of The Inspired Attorney, hosted by me, Sharon B. Today we're speaking with Alex Vanacek, who is a solo practitioner, and we touch on topics such as how he got his start, how he deals with the uncertainties related to being a solo practitioner, and the fine line of knowing when to take a case and when not to take a case. Hi, Alex. Thank you for being a part of The Inspired Attorney. Thanks for having me on, Sharon. I really appreciate it. No problem. It's great to have you here. So can you introduce yourself for our audience? Sure. My name is Alex Vanacek. Uh, I'm an attorney in Miami, Florida. I also work out of Denver, Colorado, but the majority of my work is here in uh, South Florida, and I also do some other work around the state. What kind of law do you practice? I practice commercial litigation and also a good bit of real estate related litigation. The Essentially, the market that I cater to here in South Florida is Brazilian people. How did you get into serving uh, clients between both nations? So the way I got into it was moving here to Miami to go to law school at St. Thomas University. And I ended up staying because uh, I myself am half Brazilian. My mother is from Brazil, so I grew up speaking Portuguese and English. And after law school, I began interviewing and, and sending out resumes, hoping that I would be able to do something where I could use my language skills. And so I ended up getting hired out of law school by a, a law firm here in Miami that caters to Brazilian people. And so immediately I was put into this office where everybody spoke Portuguese where uh, everything was very Brazil heavy, everything was very catered to Brazilian people. Uh, everything was, the, the clientele for the vast majority of the clientele was Brazilian. And just with my background and having traveled to Brazil as a kid a lot and having Brazilian family, it was kind of amazing to be in an environment where everybody was similar to me and similar to my family it was interesting to me and also Right away, I felt like it was something that I could do because this was a clientele that I right, right away, even with an, as an attorney with no experience, I knew that these were people I could help, even if it was just navigating how to do things in the United States and how things work. Started sure. at this firm, and this firm was very good at giving me a lot of independence and, and allowing me to work on things and have my own cases and, and manage my own clientele, which, which was great. So how did you transition from that firm to starting your own firm? The way that I transitioned was sort of within the firm, actually. they The way that it was a small boutique firm that had three attorneys at the time. I was the fourth attorney. And each of the attorneys had their own, their own professional association, their own incorporation as an attorney. So I quickly learned that each of these attorneys were their own technically their own entity, their own law firm, which to me, I, I guess I didn't realize that that's how things work, but I understand there's a lot of professions, uh, medicine, uh, I know entertainment professionals, a lot of people do that where you're a professional in an area, you may work for a company, but you have your own incorporation and they pay you through your company. And so the partner at the firm recommended that I set myself up that way as well. So that rather than be an attorney, that's an employee. Uh, I could be an attorney that's of counsel, but has his own his own setup. So, since 2014, I've had my own 
corporation, my, my, and I'm still incorporated under that name. And so that was kind of the thing that initiated it. Uh, and, and what happened subsequently is that that firm moved offices and in the process of moving, I decided that I would kind of branch off on my own, even though I still have a great relationship with that firm. I still, we have plenty of clients in common. It was a decision that was made for me to sort of separate myself from the firm, partially because they were more transactional and I wanted to do more litigation. And in order to put a little separation between those two practice areas, I ended up branching off with two other attorneys who were also working of counsel and litigation. And so my office is still three blocks down the street from the firm. I still see them quite a bit. I still interact with them a lot. I always am grateful for them for giving me a shot, but nothing can replace being your own boss and having control over all your own clients and what cases you take and what cases you don't take and things like that. So that's kind of how I, I branched out on my own. It didn't have to be a big dramatic thing or a big storm out of there and quit or anything like that. But identified a practice area that I wanted to do. I identified a couple of other professionals that uh, whose business model I felt I could sort of copy and sort of branched out with them while at the same time keeping my roots with that firm that, that gave me the, my first job. So what do you feel like has been one of your greatest challenges in being a solo practitioner and how have you responded to that challenge? I think the greatest challenge, and this is probably what gets a lot of people when it comes to leaving to start your own firm, is the uncertainty. Having a paycheck every two weeks that you know you're going to get is great. When you're a solo, the worst part probably is going, knowing that you could go one, two, three, four weeks without a check at all and, and squaring that with, well, how am I going to survive if all my bills still have to get paid. Nobody cares that there's not a lot of clients coming in this month or I haven't signed up a lot of cases or whatever. So I think that's probably the first thing. I think that's the, you know, speaking with attorneys that maybe want to go on their own or have thought about it, that's probably the biggest roadblock is, first of all, not having a guaranteed income. There's no guarantees. <laughs> and then how am I going to get clients? How am I going to have clients coming in? What am I going to do? Uh, and that's kind of um, the biggest challenges. And it's the kind of thing that once you can make it happen for yourself, it, it really, really, really teaches you a lot about the business side of practicing law. And so that's, that's really helpful. So what advice would you have given yourself when you were in that position starting out and you were seeing that transition happen and you were feeling uncertain? The advice I would give myself is, First of all, if you're going to start a solo practice, see how you could get that done in the lowest cost way possible. When I first went on my own, I technically just started working from home, which is good practice for now. <laughs> so I uh, started, started just working out of my home and started there because I didn't want to have to get into an office rent situation. I didn't want to have to owe money every month for a rental. I didn't want to and then I just figured I could meet with clients or wherever. The firm that I was at before still let me come in and use their space. So they were very nice about that. And then 
like I said, I knew there were two other attorneys who were sole practitioners that I knew I kind of wanted to work with. And they're the guys that I work with now. And eventually I walked up to, um, you know, I, I was over there visiting them and, and I told the attorney who's a friend of mine, I said, listen, I'd love to kind of sit in the corner of your guy's office. If you don't mind, I promise I'll be quiet. I'll stay out of the way. You're not going to hear anything from me, but I just love a place here in the central business district of, of Miami and Brickell. I'd love to have this spot and just be able to work with you guys and I'll, I'll pay, you know, I'll pay rent. I'll help you guys this and that. And they're very nice guys. And to their credit, they said, Hey, listen, don't worry about paying rent. Help us out because you, you speak Portuguese, you speak Spanish, help us, help us translate with some of our clients, help us uh, cover a hearing here or there. And, and then you can kind of earn your, earn your rent, let's say that way, because they knew, which was very nice of them. They knew that I was just starting out basically very, very new at it. And they, they were great. And they let me without rent, they let me stay in there. After about a year, I started getting more momentum with my practice, with building up clients, with things like that. And I said, all right, guys, it was great. Thank you so much for letting me do that. But I insist now I need to, I should be paying my share of the rent. And, and they were more than happy to let me do that because we all pay less. So I think to your, your question, as far as starting out, my advice would be to keep it as lean as possible because it is going to be uncertain and you're, you're not going to have a guaranteed check every two weeks. But what you'll come to learn is that some months are great. Some months there's feels like you're making a killing and then some months are not. Some months feel like it's lean. And so I would, what I would tell any attorney who's going out on their own is to keep your, keep your overhead as low as you possibly can right out of the gate. And that'll help mitigate a lot of your stress because if you have an expensive office rent to pay every month, if you right off the bat think that you need a, a couple of staff members or something, you're going to feel a lot of stress on those lean months, which will happen, especially when you start. What do you do to manage the mental stress that comes up when you're having a lean month? I, what I try and do, honestly, is I try and behave basically the same as far as my lifestyle and spending habits go. I try to behave the same regardless of how it's going. A lot of times that's easier said than done <laughs> because just mentally, you know, if you're having a great week or you're having a great month, Maybe we'll go to that nice dinner. Maybe, yeah, maybe we'll go and buy some clothes or, you know, splurge a little. I think that's probably human nature. But mentally, I would say that the way I handle when times are, are slower, weirdly enough, is by trying to behave, <laughs> is not getting too excited when things are going really well. Because I know that if I don't act like, oh, great, things are going really well. You know, why don't I hire someone? Why don't I do this? Why don't I do that? Why don't I get a new car? I know that if I just stay where I'm at when things are good, I won't have to worry about getting too nervous when things are not so good. So that's what I try to do. You know, it's not always doable, but it's kind of the idea. What is one of the things that you did when you were starting your practice how, in terms of finding clientele uh, with referrals and everything like that? Yeah. So my situation, given that I started a small boutique firm that, that firm does a really good job of marketing themselves. 
and they do a good job of marketing for a wide variety of issues, even if it's not something that they themselves really handle much of. And so in many ways, I was able to get the same clientele that I was working with before would come from the same firm I was working with before. It was just the difference was I would handle it on my own, not under the firm's umbrella. And so it would just be me working on on the case for them and sometimes incorporating my partners, things like that. And so it really, the benefit that I had was it's instead of just being completely out on my own and being completely by myself and, and just needing to figure out where to go, I had this firm that was sort of feeding me a reasonably steady stream of work. And then as it's progressed, I've now added a couple of other firms because there are a lot of firms that cater to my clientele, which is Brazilian people. A lot of them do not want to do any kind of litigation. They don't want to go to court. They don't like uh, any of the, the contentious stuff, which is what I do. And they, so now I've got two other firms, two other smaller firms that will also send me fairly regularly leads for clients that are in practice areas they don't do, leads for practice areas that they don't handle, but that client speaks Portuguese and would love to have you know, somebody like myself. So it's been nice to diversify, diversify these sources of leads. I will say that in my particular practice area, which deals a lot in real estate, I think it's very, very helpful if you can, because another big source of my referrals is real estate brokers or real estate agents. And I, I'll have maybe a handful of clients that have come because of one realtor who it's one realtor that works for a client. And let's say they're the property manager and this client rents out their property and they're having a problem with their tenant or there's an issue with the condo association or there's some kind of a problem. So realtors for me are a great source. It's always nice for them to be able to have somebody they can send their clients to that they can trust and that you know maybe can cater to their needs whether that's language or just knowing the, how the real estate stuff goes or knowing all that. Other than the relationships that you made from your previous firm, how have you sought out building this network of referrals? I've sought it out really by trying to stay in touch with people, by just trying to stay in, in touch with, for instance, one of these firms is the reason why this one firm has started sending me clients is because the attorney there, she was actually my predecessor at the firm that I worked at. And I didn't even know her. I'd, I'd never met her. I heard about her because I took over a lot of her work. And so, you know, I heard and she heard about me and she eventually reached out to me and wanted to get together. And I had no idea why or what would be the reason, but I said, sure. And it, it was because she said they get a lot of litigation matters. They don't do litigation matters. And she wanted to send them to me which I was more than more than happy for them to do. And so that's one way. Another way is a, a mentor of mine who has since moved to a firm. He's not even Brazilian, but he moved to a firm where there's a lot of Brazilian people and Brazilian clients. And I've, they send me a lot of work as well because they do transactional real estate. They do tax law. They do a number of things, but they don't do contentious stuff like litigation. So one of them was that and really just maintaining relationships with people who have been mentors in the past or people who have been helpful and people that people that you trust, people that you like. I think that's sort of an underrated thing is 
a lot of times if you like someone and they're a professional colleague of yours and a friend, a lot of times you'll find that that's the kind of person that either you can send business to, you can ask questions of, they'll be willing to help you out or do you a favor if you know, you're ever kind of in the weeds or refer you clients and then vice versa. And so the, it's the kind of thing where if you have relationships with somebody who is, let's say you, you think they're a really good attorney or you think that they, you know, that's somebody that you knows what they're talking about. And that's somebody you can go to that in any given area is, is kind of a go-to person. That's really helpful, both for your practice and for their practice. If they can, if you can build a relationship where, hey, listen, you can tell your client, this is somebody that's trustworthy. And then they can do the same with another client. Hey, listen, you can go to this guy. I trust him because he's a good friend of mine and he's a good professional who's competent. So I think that's the best way to foster the relationships is just like any other, any other relationship or friendship, really, if you can build up something where it's a trust and a competent of what you're doing and you're fair with people. I think that goes a really, really long way. Did you ever have situations when you were starting out where a case came your way? where it was something that you knew wasn't for you? And did you take it or did you refer it out? How did you handle those situations? That's a really great question. There were cases like that that would come up. And one thing I would absolutely caution people who are starting their own firm, I get it. You're uncertain about the money coming in and things like that. And all of a sudden somebody comes along and they're, maybe they're willing to pay. Maybe they have some money but you have no idea how to what to do with their case. You have no idea what's going on. One thing, when I was doing my first CLE in Colorado, one thing they kept hammering into us was that the, the phrase, sometimes the best case is the one you don't take. And so one thing is to avoid those scenarios, but there is also on the flip side, there's the saying that, look, everybody's been in the airplane well, maybe not everybody, but at some point, the pilot has to fly for the first time on his own. And maybe nobody in the plane has any idea that this was the guy's first time. So there is a fine line between saying, no, I shouldn't touch this. You know, I don't know what I'm doing. This is too much. And then there's the flip side of, well, I haven't done this exact case, but can I figure it out? Or is there somebody that I can Is there somebody that I can, that I trust, that I know that can help me out? And so one example might be a a probe when I was at the law firm I was working at was a probate case that came in and I took wills and trusts in law school. I had an idea of how these things work, but I, in the practice, of course, I had no idea how to, what you actually need to do in a probate case. I knew it was fairly simple because this was a surviving spouse who needed to claim the money that her late husband left in a bank account here. So relatively straightforward, no drama. And I hemmed and hawed about it for a while. The firm was hoping, you know, was counting on me to bring in cases. But at the same time, I didn't know what to do for a probate. I immediately called a couple of friends of mine who work in probate one who even was interning at the courthouse for probate and both of them were very helpful and said, no, 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 I can, I can show you what you need to do. I can walk you through it. (laughs) I can send you the forms and what you're going to need. And so at that point I felt more comfortable and I went back to the client and said, look, here's what we can do. Here's how we're going to do it. And it ended up working out fine. And I learned how to do it. And now 
one of the areas I do is, is uh, simplified probate estates. And usually the, the facts are, it's somebody from another country, usually Brazil, and they have, most of their estate is down there, but maybe they have one or two things here. Maybe they have a property or maybe they have a money in a bank account. So now, now it's something I can do. Now it's something that I can do on my own, that it's fine. But at the beginning, you do need to watch, you do need to watch for taking on something that you don't know about, because obviously you can, you can really screw somebody's case up when you don't know what you're doing. But there's also a fine line. And this is something that I learned right off the bat is that there is a fine line. And there's also at a certain point, you can't just never do any kind of case ever because you've never done it because otherwise, when are you going to, you know, when are you going to do it? So what I would say is if you can join up with another attorney uh, and especially if you're a solo and let's say it's an older solo who is a specialist in that practice area, if you can team up with them and they're willing to do it because, Hey, they're not going to mind splitting the fee with you and, and making some money for themselves. And they might not mind showing you how to do it. So if you want to work on maybe the first two or three types of those cases with that more experienced person, I think it's a great idea. I think it's something that you're going to learn a lot. And then after maybe the third or fourth one, you can go ahead and, and take it yourself. If you still have that relationship with someone, you can still get help from them. So I think that that's, that's a key is if you're going to venture into something, do all the research, do look into it. but bounce it off another attorney who maybe has is proficient in that area. And you might find that it's nothing to be scared of. You can do it. I would say that it's something where you, you have to find the sweet spot where <laughs> you're not going out on a limb and you're not going to potentially ruin something for somebody just because you're taking some case you don't know what to do. But at the same time, I, I think there's a, at a certain point, you can't be scared either. If you know that it's something you'd like to do, if you know that you can get help, I think it's a good, good way to do it. I think that's really good advice because basically, you know, you need to be resourceful and you also need to ask for help. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Have you ever had any situations with these attorneys that you partner up with where there's potential disputes or where there have been disputes and how have you handled them? Yeah. I'd say the disputes we have are usually one of two things. It's either in the substance of the case, like what should our strategy be? Maybe there's a disagreement. Oh, I think that's a stupid argument. I don't think we need to make it. I don't think we should do that. I don't think we should pursue this strategy. I think we need to do this instead. So that'll a lot of times be a source of, of disagreement. Uh, it's it's never like very bad thing. It's, it's a, I would say, very productive and probably ultimately good for the client that you have attorneys that are actively debating what's the best thing for the client. So that's never the worst thing. On a rare occasion, there will be conflicts with let's say fees and splitting of fees but usually usually we avoid those right off the bat by setting right away it's a flat fee we're going to split it 50 50 or we're going to team up on this case and the retainer is this and you know just let me know how many hours you work and i'll write you a check every every so often it's less frequent that that happens but it, it does happen one thing that we, in our situation, there are disputes and it's a little bit different because nobody is anybody's boss. So there's no, it's not a hierarchy. There's no, nobody's getting fired. Everybody's just, it's just hey, I, I disagree with this or I disagree with that. 
I know that I personally have different philosophies when it comes to running a law practice than my office mates do. Um, and I see that every, most days I see that you can tell, you know, the little bit of a difference. What advice would you give to someone who is dealing with a situation where they are solo, but they do partner up and they are dealing with disputes, especially um, when it comes to fees? Yeah, I would say that a lot of the times, like you'd advise a client as far as getting into a contract or getting into an agreement is just make sure the expectations are set right off the bat. I think that that's key when you're working with someone. I think that also when it comes to some attorneys expect referral fees as a matter of course, just if you send me a case, I'm going to send you a check. If I send you a case, you send me a check. Some attorneys don't do that. And sometimes there'll be a bit of a disagreement there about whether to send a referral fee, whether to how we're going to split up the billing. I think we also need to do is try to feel out what that particular case is like <laughs> and how it's going to go. Because a good example is a case I had a few years ago with my partner. I knew that this client had a decent case. I knew that we were going to have to bill him by the hour, but I also knew that he was a little bit, for lack of a better word, a little bit cheap. He didn't understand why he was having to, to spend all this money on attorneys. And I knew that. So I myself stayed more or less out of the case. I was mostly the interpreter <laughs> between my colleague and the client. I was involved as co-counsel, but I wasn't, I kept my billing as light as possible because I knew that this client was going to create problems with paying and that my partner was going to do the vast majority of the work. And I didn't want to create more billing because I knew that the client wasn't going to go for it. And I knew and I also, in that particular case, no, it wasn't necessary. So I think that's part of it is had I insisted on getting half of the fee for that case, it wasn't going to work. <laughs> I got, I would say it was probably three quarters. My partner got it because he did the heavy lifting. I stayed more or less out of it. Would I have liked to have billed more on it? Of course. But sometimes it's just the, the situation doesn't call for it. And sometimes it's best to know when to maybe step aside or not do as much or let the other partner have more of the, the billing. I think that's a really good feedback. Thank you for watching. So grateful to have had you here for part one and I will see you guys on the next episode.